good morning. About half of you are awake, everybody else is still asleep, right? That's okay. Hopefully you won't go to sleep anymore. So I'm Travis. I'm one of the pastors here at Risen Life. And as soon as I start talking, if you don't know me at all, one of the things you'll find out very quickly is I'm not from around here, which means I may say words that y'all don't understand. That might be or have been one of them, y'all. That's everybody in here. Or as Stacy's grandmother would say in western North Carolina, Ewans, or used guys if you're from the northeast, however it might be. One of the things about growing up in the south that you find out very quickly about the south, or if you've visited there, you find out very quickly, is the south is really known for one thing. And it's not known for nice people, even though that's part of it. It's not known really for college football, even though that's part of it. Kevin Lund can't say that Washington won the national championship because a southern team in South Carolina, namely Clemson, won the national championship where I grew up on Saturdays. The South is really known for food. That's really what we're known for. The South is known for weird food. It's known for grits, which is just corn that you put butter and salt in. It's known for catfish. It's known for barbecue. Barbecue is a noun. It's not a verb. You don't go out to barbecue. You go out to eat barbecue. It's known for hash. That's a South Carolina thing. That's everything else that's not in the barbecue put into a mix and then kind of into a stew. And it's known for restaurants. One of the restaurants the South is known for, if you've ever been into the Atlanta airport in Terminal C, now that tells you how much I fly through there. I shouldn't know that. But as you're walking through Terminal C, you'll hear people screaming at you. And they're screaming, what do you have? What do you have? It's a place called the Varsity. It's a place in downtown Atlanta that has more grease than food. You go in as a southerner, you go to places like the Varsity, get your monthly oil change. The big thing the Varsity is known for is for hamburgers and hot dogs. But again, their big thing is, is that they walk in. When you get in line, if you don't know what you want, they will scream at you, what do you have? And if you don't know the answer to that question, they expect you to get out of the line. They're not rude about it. They just want to move people through. But their big thing is, what do you have? As I was reading through Romans chapter 5, that kept coming to mind. What do we have? What do we as Christians have that unbelievers do not have? Because there are some very specific things that we can say as Christians that we have that, that non-Christians, unbelievers, don't. So as we look at Romans 5, verses 1 through 5 this morning, that's what I want us to look at. We're going to see five things that we have that unbelievers do not. That We have a differentiation with believers and unbelievers. So if you will, turn to Romans chapter 5. If you've got a print copy, turn there. If you've got an electronic copy, find Romans chapter 5. We're going to read just the first five verses. If you would, if you're able, stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's word this morning. As we look at Romans chapter 5, 1 through 5, Paul says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. We celebrate in the hope of the glory of God. Not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit 
who is given to us. Lord, bless the reading of your word. Bless the preaching of your word. Let us not run in front of the cross or lag behind, but keep us this morning, Lord, at the feet of Jesus. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Be seated. Here's the first thing we're going to see from Romans chapter 5, verse 1. I said there's five points. We've got five verses. It's just that simple. So in verse 1, we're going to see that the difference, one of the differences in between believers and unbelievers is that we have peace. The first word, I'm reading New American Standard, the first word in New American Standard, I think in English Standard as well, is the word therefore in verse 1. Now what this does is this points to previous context. You may have heard me say before in previous messages, I went to seminary for a long time. I spent a lot of money and a lot of years learning this. When you read the word therefore, you have to figure out what the therefore is there for. Right? It's that easy. It's not rocket science. So what's happening here is Paul is pointing us back to preceding context. In fact, with this particular therefore, he's pointing us back to the entirety of the book preceding to Romans 1 through 4. So here's what he wants us to remember so far. He wants us to remember the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He wants us to remember that unbelievers are sentenced to an eternal hell. He says that in Romans 1. He wants us to remember that God has revealed himself to creation, or in creation, and in Christ. That's in Romans 1. He wants us to remember that God doesn't show partiality in salvation. Race doesn't matter. Family doesn't matter. Money doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is a personal relationship with the risen Christ. He wants us to remember that the entire world is guilty of sin, and he wants us to remember that humans are justified only by faith, and in the previous chapter, specifically discusses the justification of Abraham by faith, not by works. Remembering all that, then Paul says, therefore. In fact, some New Testament scholars believe that this particular occurrence of the word therefore is the most significant finding of the word in the book of Romans because it signifies a shift in the argument. So he says, therefore, having been justified by faith. That word justified that he used is very, very important. In fact, many Christian theologians say that justification is the heart of the gospel. Some theologians would argue if we miss justification, if we miss what it means, then we miss what the New Testament is teaching. Justification means very simply this. It's the action of making something righteous in the eyes of God. Guess what the Bible says about us in Romans 3? All have sinned. We are sinners. We're unrighteous in the eyes of God. But justification simply means that we're made right in God's eyes. And there is today significant ongoing debate among scholars as to what this word means and how it's used and exactly how Paul uses it in the New Testament. But however it's resolved, there's two things that are true and two things this morning that should make you want to stand up and be a charismatic. Now, I know who I'm talking to. I get it. But they should make you want to stand up and be, as Robert would say, a Pentecostal. Here's the first thing. Justification happens when, in God's eyes, we move from sinner bound for hell to saint bound for heaven. If that doesn't make you amen or want to stand up or something, let me introduce you to Jesus. The second thing is this. Justification is not based on you. It's on your faith in Christ. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. 
For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Justification means we're taken from sinner to saint, and it's not about us, it's all about His work. Aren't you glad that that's the case? If it were based on us, I don't know about you, but I mess up stuff just enough to need a professional to come fix it after I fix it. Think about how that would be if we tried to fix our own salvation and then had to call a professional. Let me introduce you to the Old Testament. That's what happens all the way through. So he says, therefore, having been justified by faith, and then next, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Having been justified, we now have peace with God. Let me say that again. I want you to get this. We, risen life, fellow believers, we have peace with God the Father. We have peace. Do you know from the time of Genesis 3 when our grandparents were expelled from the Garden of Eden through the times of the patriarchs and the times of the judges and the prophets, humanity has longed for one thing and one thing alone, and that's peace with God. And I can prove that to you. For thousands of years, we sacrificed thousands of animals. For thousands of years, we performed thousands of rituals. We created religion after religion. We formed and worshipped man-made idols. We laughed, we cried, we searched. We desperately wanted hope. We desperately searched for peace. We longed for life, and when we couldn't find it, we longed for death. And now, because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and because of the justification that God gives to us by faith in His work, we have peace with God. For thousands of years, I want you to catch this, hundreds and hundreds of generations of humans have longed for that one thing that we take for granted on a daily, hourly, minute-by-minute basis. And now not only do we have peace with God on an individual basis, we have peace with God on a corporate basis. Those of us who are believers not only have individual peace, we have this corporate peace with fellow believers. We have a family that will last for eternity, and this is not a husband, wife, children, sibling family I'm talking about. It doesn't take a special building to make sure this family stays together for eternity. This is deeper than any biological family could ever hope to be. This is a spiritual family that God himself has chosen, delivered, and sealed. And every week we get to gather together as a corporate body and express our peace with God individually and corporately through worship. This is something that Augustine called the bond of love. You remember the old song, We Are One in the Bond of Love? You ever heard that? That comes straight from Augustine from almost 1,700 years ago. Augustine called the Holy Spirit the bond of love. If you'd have told me 10 years ago I'd be serving in a church with a guy from Seattle, I'd have told you you're nuts. I don't care nothing about, and especially where I was growing up, where I grew up in the South, everything that's not the South is the North. New Mexico's the north. Arizona's the north. Seattle's really the north. 
I was the kid that in church on Wednesday nights, we were praying that California would have a big earthquake and fall off into the ocean. You laugh, but I'm being serious. That's just how we grew up. If it's not the South, let's just kick them out of the U.S. and we'll be the real Americans. Bass boats and all that good stuff. NASCAR and football, it's all you need. Hey, I got an amen. Preach on, right? Take up an offering. We're good. <laughs> What's the problem with that? The problem with that is it's not biblical. The problem with that is not that it's a geographical thing or a national thing. It's a Holy Spirit thing to put us together in this one family so that, yes, even the most redneck of Southerners, who's been to more NASCAR races than I can count, can serve with the most unredneck, unsouthern person I've ever met in my life in Kevin Lund. Who, as Robert likes to say, when a plate of lettuce goes by, Kevin says, oh, I'm so full. Just by looking at it. That's the bond of love that we have. And all of this is through Christ. Many people are visiting Christian churches this morning and wondering why there's so much of an emphasis on Jesus. In fact, you may be a visitor here this morning wondering why there's so much of an emphasis on Jesus. We emphasize Jesus as believers here and around the world because through Him and through Him alone, we have peace with God. We can, by reconciliation to God through faith in Christ, breathe a sigh of relief. First of all, we have peace. Secondly, in Romans 5.2, we're going to see that we have grace. The first few words here in Romans 5.2 says, Through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. Notice our introduction to grace is through Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ alone. There's no other way to find grace. There is no other means of obtaining grace. When we do baptisms here, it's not giving extra grace. We did a baby dedication just a few weeks ago. That's not extra grace for the families of the babies. It's a one-time thing. It's a grace, grace, God's grace. Listen to John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. If you think one verse isn't enough, I'll give you Acts 4, 12. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. 1 Timothy 2, 5. There is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. What I want you to notice is that this grace is found through Jesus by faith. Grace and peace are not found through any other means than by faith in the person and in the work of Jesus. What I hope that you're beginning to see is there's a common thread through this passage, and that it's not about us, it's all about him and his work and our dependence, 100% dependence on that work. Grace and peace are not found in man-made idols. They're not found in family or job or church or works. They're found in nothing created, including if your Jesus is created. Grace and peace are only found in the Jesus of the New Testament, who is the God of time past, of time present, and of time future. Listen again to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So now the big question is, what is this grace that we have? 
What is this that Paul is talking about, this grace that we're standing in? Here's a very simple definition of grace. Receiving something you don't deserve. In fact, it's receiving something in spite of who you are. This grace that we have as New Testament Bible-believing Christians is nothing more or less than saving grace. It is amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Because I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. It's grace that through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. It is amazing grace. This grace is our only escape from the eternal consequences of our sin. It's our only way. You ready for this? You ready? It's our only way back into the covenant family of Abraham. I'm not saying grace makes you a Jew. I'm saying God is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. It puts you into the family of Abraham. It gives you the land of Moses. It gives you the Messiah of David. What is the family of Abraham? It's the covenant family that God puts you into by grace and declares you righteous. What's the land of Moses in the New Testament? It's very simple. You'll inherit it when you die. It's called heaven. Who's the Messiah of David? It's the one true and living God. It's the one mediator between God and men. It's the man, Christ Jesus. It is, as another old hymn says, the marvelous grace of our loving Lord. It's grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. It is grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. It's grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. It is get up and stand up, charismatic, want to be a Pentecostal, saved you from dirt and put you into glory, grace. And it doesn't get any better than that. And then it says, Paul says at the end of verse number two, that we exult, we celebrate in the glory of God. Here's what I want you to notice. Notice that in verse two, this is not for our sake. God did not send Jesus to die on the cross for our sake primarily. He did it for his glory, for his purpose. I want you to make no mistake. Jesus did not die on the cross primarily because you were on his mind. Now you're kind of like, well, no, wait a minute, whoa, I don't know about that. Jesus did not go to the cross because we were needed in heaven for some reason. Jesus did not primarily, that's my key word, primarily die for us. He died primarily because it was God's will and for God's glory to complete those covenants with Abraham, Moses, and David. Listen to Isaiah 53.10 again. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Jesus died because it was God's will to put him to death. Now, don't misunderstand. God's will for the death of Christ was for the restoration of these covenants and for the completion of the covenants. So to get us into that family, one of the secondary reasons for the death of Christ was for our salvation. Here's my fear. My fear is when we say Jesus died primarily for me, that we make God's plan about us 
and not about his purposes and his will and his glory. God's plan is not centered on us. We are not the center of the universe. Now, there are people in this city who think they're the center of the universe. They're all driving on Interstate 15 every day. There are people who think this city is the center of the universe. Or this state is the center of the universe. I got news for you. None of that is true. Because there are more Christians speaking a language other than English this morning than there are speaking English. The fastest growing movement of religion in the world is not Islam. The fastest growing movement of religion in the world is evangelical Christianity in China among underground believers. They don't speak English when they meet. That's where God is moving. I'm not saying he's not moving here, but we are not the center of the universe. The first words in the Bible are all about God. In the beginning, God. The first of the Ten Commandments is about God. The first part of the Great Commandment is about God. God's plan is about God, not about us. Are we part of that plan? Yes, but His ultimate reason is for His purpose and His glory. Ultimately, this is not about us. It is all about Him, and we get to be a part of it. Why? Because of grace. How good is that? You know what God could have done? He could have flooded the earth, and that would have been it. He could have sent us out of Eden, and that would have been it. He could have left us to have to have temples and sacrifices and priests, and we'd all be searching for the red heifer. But what did he do? He gave us grace so that none of that is necessary. It's all because of grace. Thirdly, we have perseverance. Notice what he says at the beginning of verse 3. And not only this. Here's what one of the things that Paul loves to do. One of the things he loves to do is he, he likes to write and add layer upon layer upon layer upon layer. In fact, sometimes in the New Testament when Paul is writing, he'll say, not for this or for this or for this or for this or for anything else. He's almost the kind of guy that says, I'm going to try to enumerate everything, and if I miss something, everything I forgot. And when Paul says not only this, that's what he's doing here. He's adding to his previous writing about justification. Look what he says. Not only this, we don't only celebrate in hope of the glory of God, we celebrate in our tribulations. Has Paul been to Denver and eaten the brownies? Who celebrates difficulty? Paul says, I do. And if anybody knows about difficulty in the history of Christianity, Paul's the guy. How many of you, when you go through a difficult time in life, say to yourself, man, give me some more, please. This is great. If you do, I'd love to talk to you and smack you back into reality. It's very likely that no human in his or her right mind would ever celebrate in tribulation. We don't celebrate difficulty, and we surely don't ask for more. In fact, we do the opposite. God, take this from me. Shows you the humanity of Jesus when he's about to go to the cross. 
Why then would Paul say that we can celebrate when we go through difficulty? He says, I'm glad you asked. Look at the next phrase. Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Paul tells us here why we can celebrate. Our tribulation, our difficulty brings about perseverance in life. Now, there's a couple of things we need to understand here. The first thing is this. Sometimes it's God who's bringing about those difficulties. If you don't believe me, I would challenge you to read the book of Job and say that God does not bring difficulty in our lives. Because the book of Job, in no uncertain terms, in black and white, says a whirlwind came from heaven. God did these things. He killed all of Job's animals. He killed his children. He made his wife go crazy. And he said, when Satan came to him and said, hey, who should I go get? God says, hey, there's Job. He puts a bullseye on Job and says, Satan, go get him. God is in control of all things. If he is in control of all things, then it means he is also in control of all of our difficulties. The second thing we need to know is this. Sometimes... We are the ones bringing about the difficulties we face. This does not remove God's control from the situation. What it simply means is this. Sometimes we act like sheep without a shepherd. I'm in Judges right now in my morning reading. I'm doing the Bible reading through in a year that Jared and I talked about at the end of the year, beginning of this year, and I'm in Judges. And what I just found out this morning in Judges always fascinates me. The Judges are raised up their individual military leaders and rulers to help the people realize they're being dumb. Because God does all these things, he gives them rest for 20, 30, 40 years at a time, and then they just forget who he is, and they go do something else, and God has to raise up another judge. That's the people. To put it differently and put it bluntly, sometimes we are thoughtless and brainless and stupid in our decisions, and we bring difficulty on ourselves. And our culture doesn't want us to take blame for something we do. The culture wants us to push it off onto somebody else. Guess what the Bible says? Take the responsibility for your actions. But God uses those times in our lives to draw us closer and to teach us lessons. So why can we rejoice in this tribulation that brings about perseverance? Because we get drawn closer to Christ. We're drawn closer to the throne. We're drawn closer to family and friends and to our church family. We're drawn closer to the gospel of Christ. I once heard a very well-known pastor in the South say this. God will never push you further than you can handle. I couldn't disagree with that more. Because if he only pushes you as far as you can handle, guess what? You don't need him anymore. What I would say is this. God will push you over the edge of the cliff of difficulty in order to make you understand you cannot do this by yourself. He will push you over the cliff. Sometimes you go through things and you think, God, when is this going to end? And it doesn't end. It continues to happen. You continue to think, God, are you going to stop this? When in the world are you going to stop this? Is this going to end? What have I done to make this keep going? God, please help me. And only at the point when he is ready will he say, there's Jesus standing waiting after I've pushed you over the cliff with open arms to catch you. God will push you into oblivion to make you realize Jesus is what matters. It's not you. You can't do it alone. That's why we have perseverance. Fourth, we have hope. Look at what Paul says in verse 4. And perseverance brings about proven 
character. Now he's adding layer on layer again. He's moved from justification by faith to celebrating difficulty in trial and now to proven character. Long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, an early Greek philosopher named Epictetus said this. Listen, difficulty shows what men are. Therefore, when a difficulty falls upon you, remember that God, like a trainer of wrestlers, or for me, wrestlers, has matched you with a rough young man. Why? So that you may become an Olympic conqueror, but it is not accomplished without sweat. Difficulty will show who we are. Only through difficulty can we really determine who we are internally as a person. Those difficulties that produce perseverance show us internally. They show others externally what we're made of. We can have character and be described as having character, but when difficult time comes, that description will be proven real or false. So you might say to yourself this morning, well, I've got it. I've got this proven character. When you go through difficulty, how does that work out for you? That's when it's going to be proven true or false. Listen to James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. There's another guy who's been to Denver. James says, count it all joy when you encounter trials, knowing now, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. We can press on further down the road each time we encounter difficulty and we can turn to Christ for help. Here's what I would say to you today. If you're experiencing difficulty, I want you to listen. Do not, do not, do not walk the road alone. Don't do it. If you're facing difficulty, look around you. There's believers that fill this room, and we're going to fill it again in about 45 minutes or so. There are believers everywhere who want to help you, but they don't know if you don't say it. When I was a pastor <laughs> in Kentucky, we had a, uh, or in South Carolina, rather, we had a board in the office, and that board had all the folks in our church in the hospital. So you could go, and if you were one of the staff guys, you could check the board and say, oh, Sally is in Greenville Memorial in this room, and she's been visited these days. Well, we had a lady call one day who was furious. She'd been in the hospital for about eight or ten days, and nobody from the church ever came to see her. Which makes me think of the line from Hee Haw, gloom, despair, and agony on me. And it's not for major heart surgery or anything. She just had something that was minor that was going on. Don't hear me denigrating her in any way. Just she, she was furious. And we said, well, you're not on the board. What happened? We, we, we didn't know. And she said, well, I never called. I just figured you all would know. To which our, our admin assistant just kind of laughed at her, which is probably not the right reaction, but that's kind of what you think. Really? What do you mean? You didn't tell us. We didn't know, and now you're mad. If you're going through difficulty, don't be mad at believers around you when they don't help you if you don't tell them. Or if, if another Christian, a fellow brother or sister in Christ here comes up to you and says, you just don't look right today. It looks like something is off. Are you okay? Don't do the thing that we did growing up and say, no, I'm good. Because you're a liar. And when it's on your face like that, you're a bad liar. Talk to other believers around you. People want to help you. And more importantly, there's a risen Savior who's always beside you, will never leave you. 
Paul finishes this verse and he says, proven character brings hope. How in the world does trial and tribulation and difficulty provide us with hope? I don't know about you, but when I'm in the midst of a difficult situation, my first thought is not, wow, I'm so hopeful. I have insomnia. I had it last night. Slept a couple hours last night. While I'm in the midst of laying in the bed, staring at the ceiling, I wasn't thinking, I'm so hopeful. I was thinking, I'll be so hopeful when the sun comes up so that this long, awful night that's from the pits of hell will be over. That was not my thought that I'm hopeful. To use a phrase that Jared quoted last week, when I'm facing difficulty, I don't think I'm good enough and I'm smart enough and doggone it, people like me. That's not what I'm thinking. I'm thinking the opposite. I'm wondering why people hate me and treat me like they do. I'm wondering what sin I've committed to make God hate me. That, If we're being honest, I think that goes through our minds a lot. God, why are you doing this to me? What have I done that I've not asked him forgiveness for? Why are you doing these things? From a biblical standpoint, though, our first reaction should be, I am so hopeful. Why? Well, taking some clues from Jared's favorite part of the Bible, the Old Testament. It's better if he's sitting in here. God promised Abraham's descendants would be more numerous than could be counted. Guess what the book of Numbers is? God saying, I told you so. God promised Moses land for his people. Guess what Moses never got to go into? He got to see it. He never got to go into it. Guess what the book of Joshua is? I told you so. Here's your land. God promised a messianic king who would rule God's people in righteousness to David. Guess what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are? God going, I told you so. But guess what there is between Abraham and the fulfillment in Numbers and Moses and the fulfillment in Joshua and David and the fulfillment in the New Testament? There's time. Guess what there also is there? There's a covenant-keeping, covenant-making God that keeps his promises. We can be hopeful because our God is that God. In fact, in Exodus 3.14, when Moses says, what is your name? That's often translated, I am that I am is my name. And that's a horrible translation. The best translation of that is, my name is, I will continue to be that which I have always been. Tell them that is my name. What had he been up to that point? He'd been a covenant-making, covenant-keeping, long-suffering, merciful, graceful God. He will continue to be that because he's always been that. We can have proven character through perseverance and hope through proven character because we know more and more each time we face difficulty that God is indeed a faithful God. There's an old hymn that sums this up beautifully. It's, I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living, whatever men may say. I see his hand of mercy, I hear his voice of cheer, and just the time I need him, he's always near. He lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives, salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives? Anybody know the rest of it? He lives within my heart. Fourth, we have hope. Fifth, we have the Holy Spirit. He says here that hope does not disappoint. How many times have you placed your hope in something only to be disappointed? 
The answer is likely many, many, many times. We put our hope in our jobs, our cars, our homes, our finances, our relationships, even our church. Everything that's human, everything that's created will disappoint. The only reason Paul says here hope does not disappoint is because it's hope in Christ. Look at what he says next. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts, the hope that's put in Christ and the love of God is the only hope you will ever find that does not disappoint. It's an external hope that comes and makes you internally hopeful. And then he says, through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. See specifically here, notice what Paul says about the Spirit. He doesn't say the Spirit was just given generally. He knows that the Spirit was given to us. The Holy Spirit is given to followers of Jesus and to followers of Jesus alone. In fact, this final phrase in Romans 5 is a redirection back to John 16. John 16, 7 is one of those verses that first-year Greek students in seminary love talking about. It says this, But I tell you, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. That word Helper is why first-year Greek students love it. Because it's the Greek word parakletos, or paraclete. Sounds kind of weird when you say it in English, but that's the Greek version of it. It simply means a helper or an advocate or a comforter or an intercessor. In fact, it's a legal term invoking the idea of a lawyer in court with a helpless individual. The Holy Spirit is our advocate we have who is taking our case before the Father's throne. John 14, 16 says the same thing. I'll ask the Father, he'll give another helper that he may be with you forever. The Holy Spirit is not some unknown, ghastly being that just kind of floats around in space touching people indiscriminately. It's not Casper the friendly God. The Holy Spirit doesn't come and go. We don't get more filled or less filled or become more or less sanctified. The Holy Spirit comes at the moment of regeneration and we experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit in fullness. There are no subsequent refillings. We're not like a balloon that's losing air and then need to be pumped back up. And notice that Paul even mentions this indirectly. He says the Holy Spirit was given. That's a past tense verb. Given in fullness. It's one time, not a continual thing. If you think it's a continual thing, I want to introduce you to the difference in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the saints had to be filled continually because the Holy Spirit had not come in permanence. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit comes in a permanent way and believers are filled once and for all. In fact, prior to Acts 2, you ready for this? How did we determine God's will? We cast lots. After Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit comes, there's no more casting lots because we have the Spirit permanently indwelt in us. All of that to say this, we have the Holy Spirit. We should celebrate daily about that simple yet profound fact. We have peace. We have grace. We have hope. We have perseverance. We have the Holy Spirit. We're going to do something a little different this morning. I want everybody in here to bow your heads and close your eyes. And I want you to think this morning about what we've said. I want you to think this morning about whether or not you celebrate Jesus as a believer in Christ. The Bible says very simply that we're all sinners. That's a 
The word sin is a word the Bible uses to describe any time we break the commands of God, whether it's in our hearts, whether we do it physically, externally, or internally. In fact, the Bible even says that we are conceived in sin. And the Bible says that when we're conceived in sin and because we are sinners, we are separated across a great chasm from God. His holiness pushes us out. And we can try everything we can try to bridge that gap and nothing works because Leviticus tells us that we have to be perfect as God is perfect to bridge that gap. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, you've never trusted that His work bridges the gap. I want to tell you there are people standing around the room that have on prayer team tags. They would love nothing more than to talk to you about who Jesus is and what He's done. Maybe you're here this morning and you are a believer. Or maybe you're going through difficulty. I want to tell you this morning that you are not alone. I want to reassure you this morning that Jesus is right beside you, arms wrapped around you, holding you close, holding you tight. Nothing can take you from the hands of the Father. Nothing. I want to reassure you that He is with you. If you're here this morning and you're facing difficulty, and you need somebody to pray with you, again, there are people around the building who would love to pray with you this morning. Probably the, the best way to sum all of this up is simply by saying this, that we have redeemed grace.